Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome. My name is Joe Neal. I'm a deputy science editor at National Public Radio in Washington, and I'll be your moderator today. Uh, this event is a, a collaboration of the Harvard School of Public Health and NPR. Uh, today's program is about an hour long, and it's titled The Ebola Disaster, How Did We Get Here and What's Next? We're going to first put this outbreak into some context and frame the issues. Uh, we'll also be discussing the implications of the first case to be diagnosed in the U.S. just a couple of days ago. Uh, we're going to explore ways to address some of the challenges of the West African crisis and policy implications uh, that, that come from that epidemic. Uh, we're going to take questions uh, both from our studio audience here and from online. Uh, you'll be also seeing a couple of video clips from NPR during the course of this hour. Uh, questions for the panelists uh, can be emailed to the forum at hsph.harvard.edu, uh, or you can tweet them to at forumhsph using the hashtag EbolaHSPHForum. You can also participate in the live chat discussion that's now happening on the website, the forum website right now. So let me start by introducing our panelists. We have four today. Uh, very distinguished group, Barry Bloom, former Dean of the Harvard School of Public Health and professor in the Department of Immun Immunology and Infectious Diseases. Uh, on his right is Stephen Geyer, research scientist studying the Ebola virus genome uh, at Harvard University. Uh, Michael Van Royen, director of the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative and vice chairman of Brigham and Women's Hospital Department of Emergency Medicine. And joining us remotely from London is David Heyman, former WHO Assistant Director General for Health Security and Environment and head now of the Center on Global Health Security, Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, I'd like to first start out by putting, putting everything in context. Uh, some of our uh, people online and perhaps in the audience uh, aren't up to date on the latest in Ebola. Uh, this week, the first case of Ebola was diagnosed in the U.S. Of course, we've had uh, three cases of Ebola in Americans who've been transferred back to this country for treatment. This is the first to be diagnosed uh, de novo here in this country. Uh, there, uh, about eight to 12 people are known to have been in direct contact with him while he was symptomatic. Uh, Ebola is not symptomatic when, uh, or Ebola is not contagious before people develop symptoms. Uh, symptoms develop anywhere from 2 to 21 days after exposure uh, to someone who is symptomatic. Uh, the uh, health officials in Texas have put into quarantine uh, a number of people who were in very close contact with this patient who had traveled from Liberia uh, to Texas through uh, Brussels and Washington Dulles Airport and the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. While he was on the pl those planes, he was not symptomatic and uh, CDC officials assure us that he was not contagious at that point. Uh, there have been other episodes of people traveling on airplanes when they were symptomatic and nobody got sick on the plane, and we may discuss that during uh, the discussion today. Um, what we really want to focus on today, though, is the crisis in West Africa where this, uh, this case originated. Um, 
so far are the latest statistics from the World Health Organization are that about 7,000 cases of Ebola have been uh, reported, uh, suspected, or documented. Uh, 3,300 people have died. Uh, most public health experts believe this is a vast underestimate of the number of cases and the number of deaths, anywhere from 2.5 to 3 times an undercount. So we may be looking at an actual uh, case count more like 20,000 at present, and perhaps up to 10,000 people have died. Um, if left unchecked, the CDC has projected 1.4 million cases um, could result by early next year, but that, is, that, that estimate uh, is, is based on nothing being done, and we do know that some steps are being taken, and that 1.4 million is in West Africa, I would emphasize. Um, uh, if we can have my first slide, I'm only going to show one. Um, one of the major issues is the complete um, uh, lack of health infrastructure in these countries uh, due uh, in Liberia and Sierra Leone to years of civil conflict. Uh, you can see here that in a population of 4 million in Liberia, there are just 51 physicians. Now, these data come before the Ebola epidemic, uh, and there were 978 nurses and midwives by this estimate. Uh, since the epidemic has started, the WHO is reporting that there have been 95 healthcare worker deaths in Liberia alone, both in physicians and nurses and midwives. So that would account for about 10% of the, uh, the trained health uh, healthcare worker population. Just a devastation of a uh, health system that uh, is part and parcel of the, the epidemic as it's going on right now. Um, what I want to do f to set the stage for the rest of the discussion is to um, show you a clip. Uh, the healthcare system is not just nurses and midwives, it is also, in this case, dis uh, the disposition of corpses. Corpses are uh, quite highly contagious uh, for at least some period after, uh, after death and just before death, and that has been a big problem in this area, as people may know. Uh, this clip is from uh, one of our photojournalists. We've, send in, we've sent in now six teams to cover this story since early August. Uh, this is uh, photojournalist David Gilkey, uh, who traveled with um, uh, some other reporters to this, uh, this part of Monrovia, Liberia. The Ebola epidemic in West Africa is out of control. A major reason is corpses. Health department teams can't pick them up fast enough. It's not easy to watch. This is one of four body collection teams working in Liberia's capital of Monrovia. They've come to pick up a woman who lived at the bottom of this cliff. Her name is Rachel Willa. She is one of hundreds of people who have died of Ebola across West Africa. The men begin putting on their protective gear. They proceed with meticulous care. This job is extremely dangerous because dead bodies are so infectious. Their families have begged them to quit, but they say someone needs to do it. And it pays good money here, about $1,000 a month. Oh, 
Thank you. As you are going in, may you be the calm, may you be the protector. We are not the protector. We will take professional mentor, but we see all with the Holy Spirit. We are injured. Take complete control as you are going in this professional trip. Amen. They carry a container of chlorine solution to disinfect the area. Mrs. Willa is inside, in a darkened bedroom. She and her husband, who died a few days earlier, leave behind four children. All of them touched her while she was sick. So did 21 other people in the neighborhood. Now many of them may be infected. So you know, you know it happened? You definitely have to go before yourself. I know you know for your own sake. <laughs> This is as close to a funeral as she will get. Mrs. Willow was well loved in this community. team will pick up a total of seven bodies today and take them to a crematorium. Tomorrow, they'll do it all over again. That, of course, has been revised far upward because uh, the response has been um, has been slow. Uh, I would like now to turn to London to David Heyman, who uh, was part of the first uh, uh, first investigation of an outbreak that turned out to be Ebola uh, back in 1976 and uh, several others. And if David, you could give us some context from your knowledge going way back then and how we can, uh, how should we view today's outbreak in West Africa? Right. Well, thanks very much. I, I couldn't see the film from here, but the sounds reminded me of the terror that these outbreaks really cause in communities. They're terrible sights, and those of you who have been there know how, how really terrible and devastating they are. But in the past, the outbreaks have all been stopped while they were still in a rural area. What's happened this time is that it's spread into an urban area. In rural areas, there's good community organization, village chiefs, traditional leaders. And when the Red Cross, Red Crescent Societies, and others work with communities to help them understand about Ebola, it's much easier to deal with the disease. But the same three principles that were established back in the first outbreak are still valid principles today, and they can stop this outbreak. And, of course, that's isolation of patients in hospitals where health workers are prevented, protected because health workers themselves are an outlet into the community for this disease. It's contact tracing, putting those contacts of patients under surveillance for fever, and if they develop a fever, diagnosing the cause, either treating it or if it's Ebola, putting them in isolation. And the third is community involvement and involvement of other groups, such as I believe you just saw with the burial 
people who take the bodies and bury them safely. So the same principles in rural areas now have to be applied in urban areas where the virus is now spread. And it will require a lot of ingenuity and innovation by African governments. They know best how to do this, but they need support from the international community in doing training and doing other things that will help them better deal with this outbreak. Thank you, David, very much. Um, I'd like next to turn to Michael um, for his view on why this outbreak has been so particularly problematic. Thank you, and, and uh, thank you to David and his comments, which you know really point out the fact that this is a, a classic public health um, uh, intervention is necessary. And one of the one of the reasons that this became you know was out of control and became out of control is the 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 issue that just the health literacy and the poverty and uh, sort of the the health infrastructure is so weak in these countries, and particularly again in urban areas now that it's spread, there's very little. Um, the, the, the degree of health literacy and understanding of the population is pretty low. Um, the, the epidemic thrives on um, poverty and, and, in this case, um, a misunderstanding of the issues related to its spread. Um, the, the issue of um, bolstering health centers and the capacity of health centers is really only a very small part of this. I think one of the big weaknesses here is just the, the public health infrastructure, health communications, and the ability to, to message um, the uh, the way this disease is spread or not spread, and to help communities understand how to screen for it. It's, and it's very difficult. Um, the international responses have been slow, firstly because the, uh, I believe the organizations like WHO and the CDC were not able to or did not um, listen to the ground truth in this case. There are organizations like Doctors Without Borders, like Samaritan's Purse, who have managed these epidemics before, but said early on that these were different. It was different because of the degree of spread, uh, the locations of the spread, and the, the widespread nature of it, that this was different than, say, a self-contained rural area. So, um, you know, in my field in humanitarian aid and when we deploy people to the field, we always listen to the ground truth and what's really happening in the ground. And this one, these organizations were calling for assistance earlier and, and in a much more robust fashion than uh, was really addressed or, or supported. Um, Secondly, the complexity of the response, it's not in the, the purview of ma many major international organizations to step into this, right? So organizations like Doctors Without Borders who have taken a tremendous leadership role or uh, some organizations like Samaritan's Purse who have done this and learned from MSF, um, many organizations are not comfortable in this setting. And so organizations like Care and Save the Children and Oxfam and many others um, where they would be able to respond in crises like this fairly readily. Everybody goes to Haiti. Everybody goes to some other places that seem to be a lot less complex. But because this is... Um, difficult both from a medical control perspective as well as a, and an infection control perspective, um, as well as kind of the, the mass scale needs that are out there, um, it was very difficult for regular organizations to step into this. So the, it's one of the reasons that the scale up has been uh, particularly slow, I think. To, can I just stop you there? To yeah. what extent did the uh, disruption of air travel and other ports of entry uh, play into this and keep those organizations perhaps they wanted to um, participate and they weren't able to bring in their, their supplies via, via normal channels. And, and I think that organizations that, that are veterans in this field, the big major NGOs, 
are sort of capable of managing their own operations and getting their operations mobilized. I, I think your point is actually really important as it relates to the supply chain, though, because one requirement in order to have a, a realistic way of manning Ebola treatment centers is to have a, a very um, deep and reliable supply chain, which is still not established. All right. Thank you. Let's take a step back a little bit and find out more about this virus and what it is. Uh, Stephen Geyer um, has been looking at the genomics of the virus, uh, published a, a key paper um, maybe six weeks ago, uh, looking at how rapidly it's mutating. Um, just the word mutation tends to send some fear into people. And uh, tell us more about what, what, what your findings mean and how people should interpret them. Sure. Um, <clears throat> Ebola virus is a, a very small virus. It only encodes seven proteins. And so um, because of, it's about uh, 20 kilobases in size. And so because of this, most of the real estate in the virus is actually taken up by these proteins. And so there's very little areas in the virus that can actually tolerate mutations well. Um, and this is actually good for us because we don't want these mutations to be popping up in, in, in the virus. Um, but that being said, we do see mutations happening, and RNA, uh, as opposed to DNA, um, which is the genome of, of Ebola virus, actually mutates fairly quickly. And there's other, you know, HIV and, and other RNA viruses that have shown mutations um, and, and adapt to drug therapies and things like that. But Ebola is actually mutates at a, a slower rate than something like HIV. Um, but as the mutation, as the, the outbreak continues, you have um, transmission that happens from one person to the next. And when that happens, you're basically giving the virus an opportunity to sort of change some of its genetic coding. And this is completely random. Uh, but it's just like throwing dice, where every time you throw dice, um, you have a higher probability of landing on, on the number that you, that you want. And so every transmission that happens, you're, you're sort of rolling the genetic dice and, and increasing the chance of one of these mutations happening in a functional region of the virus that could be important for transmission or pathogenesis. Um, and just one last note, there's been a lot of um, uh, talk in the news about uh, whether this virus can become airborne. And I'd just like to address that and say, it, it's really not in the biology of, of this specific virus to do that. It's, uh, e Ebola's evolved a very strategic um, transmission uh, procedure through, through the population, and that's through bodily fluid contact. And so that's, that's been very successful in this outbreak um, for the virus to utilize. And so it's, it's, I sort of liken it to, to this idea that if you have a rat that has babies, it's not, its babies are not going to have wings. It's just not in its biology. And this is very similar to, to the biology of the virus. Is it not also the case that uh, we've not seen in, in the history of, of our knowledge of viruses any virus change its mode of transmission so dramatically from, That's say, correct. bodily fluids to airborne? That's correct. You'll, you'll, you'll see viruses that can infect new species. That's more, more probable than having a complete change in the mode of transmission that happens. Great. Thank you for that. Uh, I'd like to turn next to Barry Bloom and uh, ask you, Barry, um, this isn't just uh, an infectious disease problem. It's not just uh, an epidemic. Um, it's, it's about the, the health infrastructure of these countries, which is, was just devastated in these wars. Maybe I could start, uh, thanks, Joe, with the, uh, the next PowerPoint on uh, looking at these countries. 
Um, a famous uh, New York Times author, Tom Friedman, wrote a book called The World is Flat. And I think when you see the data, you get a pretty quick picture that the world, at least in the realm of economics and health, is not what anyone would call flat. And if you look at um, the total uh, goods and services output, the uh, global domestic, uh, the uh, domestic product of um, these countries compared, for example, to the U.S., the entire budget of, uh, of uh, Liberia is less than $2 billion, which is the one year's budget for the World Health Organization as a comparative figure. Um, but if you look at um, uh, what they put into health, it's quite shocking. So everybody knows the U.S. Is the, spends the most on health, uh, probably twice as much as most European countries and gets slightly less good health outcomes on the population level. Um, so we're number one in GDP expenditures and GDP per capita in health. But number two is Liberia, and number three is Sierra Leone. So with the minuscule budgets of funds that they have, uh, internally, an enormously high percentage is spent on health, and yet um, the health systems are broken. Um, I've put down, perhaps we could talk later, about another sub-Saharan African country on east of Africa that doesn't have that much bigger of a budget or gross national product, but has done absolutely <coughs> magnificently in health at a lower per capita spending. So it is dollars that count, but it's how those dollars are used and organized and the leadership in seeing to it that they're utilized well. And you're that does about, make a, a difference. Talking there about, sorry to interrupt, uh, that you're talking there about Rwanda, right? I'm talking about Rwanda, right. which is the uh, comparator that is closest and yet has solved so many of its health problems. Right. Uh, very good. Thank you, Barry. Um, for the next part of our presentation, we're going to look more at the policy implication of what works and what doesn't. Uh, and I want to set the stage uh, for that with another clip uh, from our NPR photojournalist, David Gilkey. Uh, it's a very short clip. Uh, it was taken, I believe, in the beginning of September, also in Monrovia. Uh, I believe it was around the time that the uh, government there had quarantined the uh, West Point neighborhood and there was great fear, there was a lot of uh, social unrest, and it illustrates uh, I, to me uh, so vividly the, the factor that fear plays in this, in controlling it and getting people into, uh, to get tested. Uh, to, it, it, it illustrates the breakdown of society that's going on there. So if we could see that next. Yeah. <laughs> 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 
Very sad. Um, the he the he died there, and uh, he was left there for quite some time. People were afraid to touch him, and um, uh, clearly, people were afraid, frightened. Um, they didn't know how to help. Uh, they wanted to help, but um, um, I think it just demonstrates the the massive failure of the health system and. Uh, the fear that that this epidemic has created and how it just rips whole um, the, the whole fabric of society apart. People want to hold people when they're sick. They want to care for them, but they shouldn't in this case, uh, and that can just tear society apart. Uh, to move into this next part of the discussion, um, I I want to discuss some of the major issues that are that are facing us now, and I think um, I would like to start with. Um, David, you there in London, I'm not sure if you could see the video, but um, uh, if you could talk about the role of development agencies and the coordination that's needed to try to get help to these countries so that their health infrastructure can at least be stabilized, if not uh, someday supported and grown. Well, just today here in London, there was a major conference of European countries to talk about how they might contribute to the outbreak. And there have been lots of pledges of technical support and of financial support. And now, of course, the challenge is to get that into the field and translate that into action. But when it gets to the field and is translated into action, it's very important that there be good coordination. And governments have to be the coordinating agency, but they need to be supported in their countries by organizations such as WHO and the UNDP and others. And they need to identify where people would go, what they would do, what their comparative advantage is. MSF long ago staked out its advantage as being the group that can treat patients. But there's lots of other need in these countries, training of epidemiologists, training many, many people in many different tasks. And that's where the coordination is so important, so that people don't get in and fall over each other or sit and not have anything to do because nobody's told them where the gaps are or where they should be going. At the same time, it's also important that these agencies set up a logistics platform because, as you know, there are only two airlines flying in, Royal Moroccan and Brussels Airways, and what's necessary is a logistics platform where the goods that need to go into those countries can go in in a way that they're there when they're needed. Well, the U.S. has uh, pledged 3,000 troops and is uh, starting to build an air bridge through Senegal. Is that sufficient? Is that, will that be enough? Well, we've seen in other disaster situations, such as the tsunami in Indonesia, that air bridges were possible, 
and that, that civil, military forces could set up those platforms. There are others also that could be doing this. There are many mining companies that have excellent logistics within the countries. They could be contributing as good industry, as could lots of different groups. So it's just a matter of the coordination being done to show people what they can do and make sure that they do it. Mike, do you have a view on this? Yeah, the, I'm the, sure you do. <laughs> well, I mean, the, um, the UN OCHA has a, has a coordination structure called the cluster system, and many of you are probably aware of that, and I think that it's been activated. So the clusters have uh, sector-based clusters like in health and logistics and, you know, food and food security, et cetera. Um, those clusters are actively uh, meeting and hopefully will manage this issue of coordination. Those structures weren't in place, say, for example, um, in the uh, Indonesian tsunami, and we, it were formed as a result of that. So I think those can work and, uh, and can coordinate. Another thing we'll find is that there won't be a thousand organizations that will be on the ground in Sierra Leone and Liberia because it's not so easy to work there. And so there'll be the major organizations that are used to coordinating. So I think that we have, um, you know, every good reason to think that coordination should and can work as it relates to this crisis in West Africa. But is it happening fast enough, David, Mike, Barry? I mean, I, I would just say that um, the, the coordination mechanism is not as much of the issue as just the simple scale-up. In other words, the logistics, the logistics infrastructure needs to be in place. The organizations are trying to recruit and to scale up. So coordination will happen as organizations arrive on the ground and become functional. There's been, there's been a lot of activity here in London, at the London School where I am now, at, at various institutions, and there have been lots of people going into those countries either to do some training or actually to take care of patients or to, to, to do the various activities that are necessary. But it's been very hard to find out what those needs were. And the only way to really find out has been to send people into the country in advance teams and work with the UN agencies and the government to identify what the needs are. And then it's able, we're, then the UK has been able to send in support. But it's necessary that that coordination be strong and be there with its logistics support so that things can happen rapidly. It seems to me that, uh, that just one of the basics in public health that's, that's not uh, being addressed quickly enough perhaps is uh, the diagnostic work. Uh, you've been in Sierra Leone recently, Stephen, and I just wonder if what your perspective is on the, the needs for, the need to scale up testing and where things stand. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, obviously, testing needs to be, be scaled up dramatically. I think, um, you know, general diagnostic testing is, is good for two things. One, identifying cases, but two, for clinical management. When do you discharge the patient? Things like that. Um, but in an outbreak of this size, that in and of itself is not quite enough. And, and some of those reasons are is because the virus is changing. And um, it's possible that, that it's changing in areas where these diagnostics are targeting. And so in order to be able to increase the, the sensitivity or specificity of, of these different diagnostics, it's important that we keep ahead of these mutations that are actually happening. And so genomic surveillance is also very important, seeing how that virus is changing, sequencing that virus as it's transmitted throughout this whole outbreak. Um, and, and I think the biggest problem is, though, is you, you do have these d different groups, as uh, Michael and David have, have pointed out, that are trying to coordinate efforts. And so you have different diagnostic tests that are being used by many different groups. And this can be a problem because one test may have a sensitivity and specificity that's different than another one. 
um, one may be easier to operate um, than, than another test is. And so there's very little harmonization that's happened um, with diagnostics. And, and so it's very important that uh, we come in and, and we try to implement some sort of unified structure when it comes to diagnostics and outbreaks that are, are, are this wide. And so it's very difficult. The CDC has released um, an emergency use authorization for their test, but it's only available to be operated by defense um, personnel. And so people who come in like uh, Partners in Health or the Well Body Alliance wouldn't be able to use an assay like that unless they were able to partner with somebody from the DOD. So it's important that you, you do have um, this sort of harmonization where pe people can come in that do want to help that are on the ground, they're able to use those diagnostics. Let me just follow up something you just said. So the, the virus is changing in such a way that existing diagnostics might uh, stop being as effective. Is that what you're saying? It's possible. So, uh, But we're using PCR, so I don't quite... Right. So PCR, basically, you, you have um, uh, primers that bind to a specific region within the virus and amplify that region out. But if the primers that we use don't match the actual viral sequence, then you won't get that amplification that happens. So you would get a negative test result in exactly. that case, and when, so, when in fact it was positive. Right. So the, the idea is, you know, we are seeing some mutations happening in these primer regions and some of the diagnostics that are available. Um, and, and whether that actually affects sensitivity and specificity um, has not been tested yet. So these things need to, need to occur. We need to validate these assays um, on this specific strain of the virus and see how it's changing and whether they're keeping up with, with that. Well, are we at a point, I throw this open to the whole group, are we at a point where um, supportive care, isolation are much more important than actually determining who has the virus? That if people look sick, they should be isolated? I actually think we're at a point where home care should be entertained such that there's going to be such widespread um, potential transmission that, um, again, this is listening to organizations on the ground. And so whenever I'm you know, wondering what's the next step in this case, I talk to my colleagues on the ground, and one of them has consistently been seeing that having home care and so to be able to enable to pe people to um, safely take care of their loved ones who fall ill before they can get tested, before they can get tr transported or sent to some uh, treatment center that may or may not have beds mm -hmm. to actually safely care for them at home. And that scale up of home care has to be massive. I see. So, I, could, I could just talk about Professor Moyembe, who was the initial person to investigate the first outbreak and who sent the specimens off to CDC, to Antwerp, and to Porton down here in England for, for study. Um, he has now, while the world is watching West Africa, he and his teams have gone in and stopped an outbreak in the DRC in a period of a month and a half. And they've gone in and they've used techniques which some of the international organizations are not recommending. For example, everyone is calling for hospital beds. What Professor Moyembe and his group do is they isolate, just as you said, Michael, people in their homes and they give these people supplies that can protect them, and they monitor those people on a daily basis, and they go and encourage them to give care with the proper protection. These are things that must be done. Save the Children here in the UK is working with Ron Waldman, who many of you will know from the US, on a protocol for Ebola units in communities. Yet the international organizations continue to call for hospital beds and hospital beds. So it's very difficult to innovate when the standard is being purported as being hospital beds when communities can do this job many times just as well. 
Well, that speaks to the health system as a whole. Is this a new kind of health system that we have to develop, Barry? I, I think this is a uh, painfully uh, clear-cut crisis of the health systems in very poor countries and the global health system. Um, it, it isn't clear when an agency like MSF says there's an emergency that the world heard that and ignored it. Uh, that's a system that is in failure. Um, in terms of the World Health Organization to have cut its budget for um, uh, uh, crises and outbreaks by 50%, thinking the world had passed the stage where we could have these threats. And this is, was last year this that they cut the budget. This the, was in the last uh, current budget proposals, mm -hmm. uh, is very worrisome. And when you get to the countries, there's, I, I think there's nothing in all of society any more complex um, than healthcare systems. Um, uh, Liberia and, and is one of the countries, one of the 14 countries that has no vital records, which sounds crazy. They have no idea how many people are born. They have no idea how many people die. Why should we be surprised that the world doesn't have accurate data? Uh, they don't have the appropriate monitoring and evaluation stuff. And the biggest problem is um, training of workforces. Mike Van Royen uh, set up a meeting of the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative a couple of weeks ago and brought ambassadors to the U.S. from, or their representatives from 10 West African countries. And it was really very interesting when we asked them, how could we be helpful and what did they need? And this was before things really got out of control. They said, yes, they need supplies, particularly personal protection equipment. But the bottom line of those ambassadors was we need training, training, and training. It is late in the middle of an epidemic to start training, but there are organizations, institutions like WHO, uh, universities, and schools of public health that have the knowledge to provide that training. What is missing is the means to make those connections happen. Where, I mean, where do the volunteers come from, though? I mean, should, um, it, it seemed, one thing that we've had trouble tracking down as journalists is who is coordinating volunteers, who's coordinating people who actually want to go that, do, and do that and, and get trained? Or are you talking, you're talking more about training people in country to? Their strong view was, and again, this was before the crisis got quite this bad, is they weren't keen on uh, uh, foreign people coming in, parachuting in, dealing in the crisis of the moment and going home and leaving little, little behind. They were asking for training of their healthcare people at every level from uh, the few doctors who were still willing to go to their hospitals um, to the community health workers and village leaders. That's what they needed is training and people are talking about hospital beds and money and not getting, making it possible to train the people who are actually going to do the work. All right. Uh, before uh, we move to questions and answers, I just want to uh, uh, talk uh, talk about two things: uh, the 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 advent of a vaccine. Um, uh, there is a va there are two vaccines uh, that are in uh, very early stages of trials. Uh, I think an American audience would like to, to know the answer to why isn't there a vaccine already for this? We've known about Ebola since 1976. Barry? So this is a problem beyond uh, Ebola or loss of fever. It, it's a problem that relates to diseases of developing countries that don't occur in rich countries, infectious diseases. 
um, it, it relates to diseases where the markets for sale of a vaccine are essentially non-existent. And uh, we've been very successful in research in this country. Laboratories have made several very creative vaccine candidates. One is about to be rolled out by a major pharma company, which is great. Um, but they've been sitting in laboratory benches or in freezers because there is no support to take a vaccine that looks like it's working in not just mice, but monkeys, and getting at least the first safety trials in humans so that in an emergency, they could be scaled up. We have no mechanism to do that. Um, and uh, clearly, um, there's a desperate need in cholera, dysentery, typhoid fever. Many of these vaccines exist um, the support to get them tested safely so in epidemics we can deal with them does not exist. And just one thing, Stephen, uh, the, the fact that the virus is mutating so much, does that have implications for vaccine development? Um, it does. You know, this variant of the virus is actually very similar to other Zaire strains. It's only about 3% divergent. Um, but it is possible that uh, specific therapies, whether they be antibody-based or, or others um, or vaccines, um, that that difference could be important and um, there may not be cross-reactivity with current, current vaccines. That's probably not likely. There are other therapies that are currently being explored like siRNA therapies, which uh, basically uh, silence specific genes in the virus to prevent it from replicating. Those ones, it's, you have much more likelihood of mutations actually playing a role in, in preventing those sorts of therapies from being effective. So it's important that we, we understand how it's mutating. Well, I want to go to questions uh, now. Lisa Meyerowitz is here to um, tell us about some online questions we've gotten. Yes, thanks, Joey. Thanks for addressing the vaccine question. We've been getting a lot of questions. We have a lot of people in the chat um, tw on Twitter and emailing us questions. So I'm just going to offer a few here. We have folks from all over the world. Um, this is from Adwoa Hadassi with the AFRI Health Group. Do you think the inclusion of an African advisory board independent of the ministries of help, health in the decision-making process can sustain the fight against Ebola as well as the health system strengthening long after the NGOs and the various international organizations leave? Would the healthcare systems of the affected countries be in a position to manage and stop another Ebola outbreak? Or would they have to rely solely on international organizations to lead the fight again? A very forward-looking question. Mike, do you want to address that? Um, Barry and I have talked about this. It's, the, it's the, the good thing that can come out of this, actually, is that there is some way to address the kind of public health infrastructure of this region and of these countries. So the, the ability of, of um, the, very rap the very daunting task of rapidly um, increasing the capacity of public health communication, public health management, uh, the, the screening and the uh, contact tracing of this um, during this epidemic um, can hopefully someday lead to the possibility of just a, a better public health structure. Um, that would, you know, if, if we can control the epidemic and we can get to a point where there is um, some longer term plan for that would be um, a, a wonderful outcome of this epidemic. David, Joe, do you have thoughts? I, yes. I, yeah, I'd just add a little bit more because about in 2005, 194 countries in the world signed up to a treaty called the International Health Regulations. And that treaty was a, revi a revision of a previous treaty, 
but it calls for the development of eight different core capacities in public health in every country in the world. And those capacities range from disease detection systems to public health laboratories to risk communication, a whole series of things. No development agency bothered to help countries fulfill their need to develop these core capacities, and the seven years in which those core capacities were developed to be developed is now over. People have ignored it. Countries have done self-assessments. They've said whatever they wanted to say about their own capacities, and nobody's held anyone to task. So we've seen an international treaty which has not been respected by the development agencies that could be providing funds that would strengthen health systems to deal with outbreaks such as this current well, how do, you, how do you change that? Well, I think this outbreak may do it for us, hopefully, because there has to be some good that comes out of this, the horror that's being suffered right now. And if the development agencies and if countries are listening to what they signed up to do, then this should happen. Very good. Barry, do you want to add? One of the striking things at the meeting with the ambassadors um, was um, when asked the question, when they roam the halls of Congress or the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund, how do they make the case? How do they create the demand for overseas development assistance for health? A big chunk of the budgets of these countries is actually paid by overseas development agencies. The countries with a $2 billion budget can't obviously cover their own healthcare costs. But as um, Mike and, and David said, the demand for providing preventive capacity before the epidemic, the responsibility is on us and the development agencies in the rich countries. It's also on the leadership of the developing countries to prioritize health and with those uh, international travel regu health regulations to say we need aid to be able to meet those treaty obligations. Great. Lisa? Thank you. Thank you very much, Barry. Here's a question from Haiti from Elsie Salnave, health system strengthening advisor there. I would like to better understand the disease pathway because of the rapidity of the spreading. Secondly, it seems that there is no preventing mechanism. So what should be done at the health facility to be ready to receive those potential patients? Hmm. Who would like to take that? Yeah, I mean, I think we know the, the transmission pathway we know pretty well. And I, and I think we, we know the, the sort of ability, the, the spread of the virus, the contact tracing as a, as a mechanism to, to trace the, the infection. Um, we have testing mechanisms. We have an, a, a plan for quarantine. It's just a matter of scale and a matter of s sort of uh, ability to address a very widespread and, and sort of under-resourced region. Um, I think that it still all boils down to education and educating healthcare workers in facilities, educating and, uh, and equipping them as well with, you know, the appropriate basic personal prote protective gear. But um, it's about education, uh, both on the community health level all the way to the, to the sort of treatment center area. And I, I think just one comment is that you see iconic images of people in spacesuits manning and taking care of Ebola patients. And, and when you think of this uh, epidemic, that's what you think of. That's what you see on the news. And, but this war is going to be won, not at the hospital level. It's going to be won at the community level where people in clipboards and flip charts are going to be educating people. So I think that 
we have to realize that the, the spacesuits are at the tip of the iceberg, but there is so much more that needs to be done on a very basic level. Thank you. Another I question. think, Joe, I'll just do one more from online right now. I know our studio audience has some questions. Um, as an NGO ready to ship PPE, medical equipment, and supplies to Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Ghana, we are having some difficulty connecting with in-country partners who can receive these shipments. Where is the best source to connect to in-country partners? Our, our reporters are saying the same thing on the ground there, that they're seeing supplies that are just waiting to come in, but the implementation is, is at the speed of a turtle. And I should point out PPE is personal protective equipment. Thank you. Uh, who would like to take that question? Um, I can I'll, I'll say a word. I'll say, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I mean, I just, I'm, so I, I've been on the ground a couple times during this outbreak, um, and we, uh, at, we're part of Harvard's part of this uh, big viral hemorrhagic fever consortium that is uh, Scripps University and San Diego and Tulane University and a couple other partners. Um, and so we've we've actually been a huge part about uh, supplying PPE specifically for for the laboratory um, into the country. Um, so people in a laboratory need to wear this personal protective equipment as well. Absolutely. So when samples come in and they start to process the blood before you actually inactivate the sample, all that needs to be handled in, in a way where you protect protect people. Um, and you know, so we've been a part of, of providing those uh, uh, sort of transportation um, of PPE into the country. Um, and there are many other partners as well. Uh, partners in Health is working in Liberi Liberia and is a good. A good connector as well, um, but there are generally a, a huge lack of PPE um, that's currently available. It, it takes a while to ship it out there. Um, if you have a huge shipment that comes in on a crate or something like that um, overseas, it, it can take a while. And then actually, um, as we've mentioned before, uh, many people have, it, it, it's just the transportation, the infrastructure to actually get those PPE out to these villages. Some of these villages you know, don't have navigable roads to go out there. It can take days to get to these places. So it's important that there, there's on-ground coordination with some of these partners that are, are currently on the ground there. David? Yeah, um, every country where there's an outbreak now has an emergency operations center in the capital city. And this is run by the government with support from the international organization. And that's, that's really a one-stop shop if you stop there and you can work with the group that's there, they can identify where there's a need and where people should go. It's good to, to go and work with other NGOs in the country as well, but it may be that by doing that, you're duplicating and not filling the real essential gaps. So country coordination is what's the, what's the most important in, in this outbreak. It's too late to have global coordination. It's too late for outbreak tourism running in and out of countries. What's necessary? is that people in those countries are manned to support these emergency operation centers and support the governments in coordination. And I would just say the role of the military is going to be, you know, the, one of the best things that can come out of the, the U.S. military's engagement and other militaries is, you know, they're better than anybody at logistics. So the issue of creating a, a really uh, clear and um, non-fragile supply chain is what is most needed. They can do probably better than anyone. Another question? I, maybe from our studio from audience. Our studio. Thank you very much. Um, I'm from Uganda, uh, where we've uh, uh, dealt with several epidemics, and I just wanted to make a couple of, of, of comments, uh, one of which is, uh, is to do with uh, the fact that uh, given the number of epidemics we've had, I think what, what has happened is 
we've uh, learned on the ground from previous epidemics. And I think that is important. In fact, if you just last uh, October, we were going through a review in Uganda uh, looking at uh, the case fatality and what had happened over the previous epidemics, and you could see that was going down over time. And also the infrastructure and systems were put in place. Every Thursday, I'm a, as a member until I came here of the National Task Force, Epidemic Task Force, so a task force was put in place that every Thursday met, which included the cluster uh, in, in, uh, UN agencies as well as WHO and sat every Thursday and dealt with many different epidemics. In Uganda, by the way, it's not only Ebola, there is a Marburg. And in fact, the more recent one we had, which we were trying to figure out was what was called the nodding disease. Um, now, on the another aspect which, which I think is critical is the one involving the community, which I think has been mentioned. And I think community involvement is critical, uh, whereby you have, uh, you, we have now the community health workers and local people within communities who are uh, able to uh, quickly identify and communicate uh, uh, whenever they have a, any suspicion. Communicate using mobile technology in these countries is spread over, so we, they, there's a big use of, of these, these technologies to communicate uh, uh, epidemics. And that lastly, probably, is to, to note that uh, the, the setting up of a lab. We have a CDC lab now from earlier epidemics, such that, in fact, when there is a, a suspicion triage occurs and uh, samples are sent quickly to a lab in country and, and, and people are able to be, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, their, their fears are able to be reduced. Uh, probably the vaccine, we have actually also had a vaccine trial going on in Uganda. Many people don't talk about this, but in fact, from 2009, phase one vaccine, which was actually a cross vaccine with Marburg, uh, with the Walter Reed, again, we were mentioning the US military, the US military is closely involved in that. So I just wanted to m mention well, that. Well, thank you for that comment, yeah. yes. And I think that proves what, uh, uh, what we were saying earlier, how looking far ahead in the future, hopefully when this is uh, finished, that these countries will have stronger health systems like has happened in Uganda. Do we want to take another from the audience? Any questions? In the back. And could you identify yourself, please? Thank you. Uh, my name is Ibrahim Diakite. I'm from Mali. And thank you for this uh, wonderful uh, speech. I was just wondering if uh, perhaps Dave could uh, go ahead and give us an overview, a brief overview on the first outbreak, the 76 outbreak. How did it come? And also if we know uh, something on the origin of the disease. And I would add on to that question for, for David. Um, was Ebola happening before 1976, do you think? And, and was it just that the virus was delineated at that point, and that's when we started saying Ebola started here? Yeah, actually, in the outbreak, the second outbreak that occurred, there was a doctor who was in charge of the hospital in Tandala, in DRC, where the outbreak occurred. He, um, during the sero surveys that were done after the investigation and the outbreak was contained, he had antibody to Ebola, and he had been severely ill in 1972 after doing a post-mortem exam on a nursing student he felt had died from yellow fever. He almost died. His wife nursed him back to health, and he was an earlier case than 1976. 
This disease has probably emerged for many, many, many decades. We see it come many times now in Africa, but as long as it doesn't get into a situation where transmission is, transmission is amplified, the patients are usually left alone because there's a, a rumor in some countries that you don't touch a patient, you leave the spirits within, and the outbreak stops. So these do emerge periodically, but at least 1972 was the first known emergence. I would just like to, to before we uh, take the last questions, uh, obviously here in the U.S., uh, this first case is on a lot of people's mind. It's getting a lot of media attention. And I would just ask uh, for comments. Uh, will this outbreak go much further in the U.S.? Will we see uh, anything on the scale that we've seen in West Africa? I would just ask for volunteers on that. Um, I, I think that we have, you know, capacity to manage um, exposures, contact tracing, public health education. We have great and uh, um, deep structures to be able to manage that. I don't think that we'll have a, a large epidemic or a problematic epidemic. We know how the disease is spread. I think the, the fact that this was uh, messaged in, I'm an emergency physician, so this was a, unfortunately a shining moment in emergency medicine where the, the um, you know, the infected patient came and sought care and then uh, the information wasn't transmitted and the patient went home and then came back. I think this will be a, a, a you know, pretty good wake-up call for emergency departments and points of entry of patients like this to actually screen for those patients and to understand the, the risks. Uh, I think that it's controllable. I see. I might, Joe, I might sure. just add that in, there was a case of Ebola in a veterinarian who was doing an autopsy in a rainforest in in. Côte d'Ivoire, looking at a colony of chimpanzees that had died. She became sick doing the autopsy. She didn't know what she had, and it wasn't known what the monkeys had. But she was evacuated with a fever to Zurich, Switzerland, where she was hospitalized with a fever of unknown origin. She was isolated because she came from a tropical country, and she was nursed back to health. And a month later, the Ebola virus was isolated from one of her acute bloods that had been taken during her sickness. That disease spread nowhere. They isolated her immediately. And, and we have good systems in the UK and in Europe and in North America to deal with these things. And as far as air travel goes, I know the case of the doctor from <coughs> Liberia who traveled to Nigeria uh, and then subsequently exposed uh, several people, uh, some of whom died. The travel on the airplane, even though he was quite sick on the airplane, nobody on the plane ended up getting sick or being positive for Ebola. So that's just another point to emphasize that uh, when you have close contact with someone, you are at risk, but even in the close confines of an airplane, you might not get sick. Uh, any more questions, Lisa? Thanks, Joe. I'm glad that we talked about this because uh, obviously a lot of the questions coming in are having to do with what's going on in this country as well. So, and I know our time is almost up. So. I think we won't take another question right okay. now. Okay. Well, I, I just want to thank everyone for joining us today. Uh, thanks to our panelists. Um, this is an epidemic of enorm just enormity that uh, we can only hope that uh, actions will be taken soon to bring it under control and the, the worst case scenarios uh, predicted by CDC and others won't come true. Um, our forum is now at an end, but you can continue the conversation online at forumhsph.org. Uh, next week on October 8th, the forum will be hosting a discussion on marijuana legislation in the United States that will take place at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, and on behalf of Harvard School of Public Health and NPR, I want to thank you.
This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing The Forum.